Here's the um, amazing thing about our God. And uh, this is simple, and you know this. And, but if you've had a great week today, or this week, if you've served him with all your strength, when Jesus appears in the room, you can boldly go towards him. <laughs> you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to shrink back. You don't have to run. You don't have to hide. But you can boldly go through to him. You know what? If you've had a bad week this week, if you failed him, if you've sinned, if you've not lived the life that you should live and you know that, when Jesus appears in the room, when he's present here, you can boldly approach him still. We have a heavenly father that is approachable. And I think sometimes we just take that for granted, this ideal that, that you know, God's always there. He's like the refrigerator in our house. You know, the refrigerator's always there full of food, right? We kind of take that for granted. Uh, I want you to know, you don't, let's, let's not take God for granted. To, to live in this age, this dispensation of the Holy Spirit, where, where we gather in this room and the Holy Spirit is present and personal to each person in this room, I hope we never take that for granted. It is precious and significant. Stand with me if you will. It's good to see Pastor Victoria here uh, this morning. I've been praying for you. And I, it's, uh, I know it's been a long two or three weeks. It's been a long few months. Uh, but we're glad that you're here and praying for you and your family. 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Lord, bless your word. Multiply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Answer this question for me. You don't have to answer it out loud. I am. I am what? And, and I know there's a lot of different ways you can answer this question. You, you could say, I am, and, and Harold, typically in the winter, we say, I am cold, <laughs> or I'm hot. Uh, you know, you, you hear that a lot, don't you? You get a lot of complaints. So, uh, uh, I am cold, I'm hot, I'm hungry, uh, I'm sleepy, I'm bored. I hope nobody's answering, I'm bored. I'm wishing the pastor would get done so I could go home. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of ways we could answer that. May, maybe we could answer it by our name. I am Paul Wayne Mills, and I am named after an uncle that died at birth. Uh, I, it always kind of bothers me that my mother named me after her brother that died at birth. But I also had another uncle, Paul. So anytime you know, we, we talk about this Paul Wayne that none of us ever saw, I thought, well, Mom, what were you saying when you named me that? Uh, we, we can answer by our name. I am my name. Or, or, or there's lots of different ways that we can answer that question. But, but I want us to consider it a little bit deeper. Beyond how we're feeling uh, beyond uh, our name. Uh, this is a question of identity. And when, when we're asking this question, I am, we're, we're asking the question of what defines us? What, what is our identity? What, what is our ideal of self? What, what, what do we believe other people perceive when they see us? Now, our identity can be, our self-identity can be 
defined by a number of different factors. Our self-identity can be defined by relationships. So, uh, for instance, just myself, I, I have been a son. I, I am a brother. Uh, I, I am a husband. I am a, a father. Uh, hopefully I am a friend. You know, all, all these relationships we find ourselves in. And, and you can think about that as well. You know, the relationships of life. And our identity can be defined by the relationships we find ourselves in. I, I am for most a, a husband or a father or a brother or a friend. When our identity is defined solely or by our relationships, our self-identity can be harmed by broken relationships. In other words, if you are solely defined as a husband or a wife and your marriage relationship breaks, then your self-identity, your ideal of self will become broken. If, if your, your self-identity is defined by friendships and, and a friendship is marred, then your ideal of self, your self-identity can become marred. And all of us struggle with this, right? <laughs> this isn't new. This isn't something that, that as I think about this ideal of identity, I'm not the only one that sees this. We, we all struggle with this, and we all have issues with this from time to time in our life. Our identity can be defined by accomplishments, what we do. And so... You know, in my life, you know, I, I think of accomplishments more, more as roles that I filled. Uh, you know, so I, I've been Paul the lawyer, and I've been Paul the pastor. And, you know, we, we, we can have accomplishments, you know, getting to a certain GPA in school or, or, or being an athlete and, and, and playing a sport or, or, or perhaps, uh, you know, get, getting to a certain level in school or, or, or running a, a marathon or a half marathon or, or accomplishing something physical or, or with our mind. And, and, and these can be the things that begin to shape our identity. But when our identity is defined by our accomplishments, our self-identity can be diminished when we experience failure. Why is this all important? See, I believe people identify themselves, that they define themselves by these things that can change. Relationships change. You can be a very good person that goes through a divorce. And that divorce should not define your sense of self. You could be an awesome employee, but your company could still go under. And if our identity is defined by that position, we can wrongly diminish our self-identity. See, our identity can be defined by a number of different things. And, and, and a lot of people in this world, and if I were to guess, probably a lot of people even in this church suffer from damaged self-identity. You know, you, you, you've, been, you've had identity theft taken. <laughs> you know, you, you, your ID has been stolen. And, and, the, and the, the symptoms of this are Fear. You know, if you suffer with fear, anxiety, 
If you're anxious over everything that's going on, you're constantly anxious. If sometimes depression, and, and, and you know, I'm not a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and, and you know, I, I understand that there's physical components of this, but there's also mental com- components of depression. And, and depression can be a symptom of a damaged self-identity. Hypersensitivity in that we always talk about uh, when, when the boys played sports, you had referees that we said had rabbit ears <laughs> that could hear everything that was said and were ready in a flash to give a technical or something. Um, but we can be like that in life. We can be hypersensitive. If, if, if you obsess over a text or an email, what did they mean by that? There might be some self-identity issues that maybe you need to deal with. Who, who hates when you get a text and an email and you can't tell whether it's negative or positive, right? <laughs> maybe um, obso- obsessive, compulsive, or addictive behavior. That is a symptom of a damaged self-identity. Workaholic behavior. Not, not feeling like you can stop, but, but you're always on the treadmill trying to accomplish more, trying to do more, trying to get to that next level. And then I like this one, mind reading. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've got ESP. Uh, but, but sometimes when we have damaged self-identity and, and self-image uh, of self, what, what we do is we begin to try to guess what people are thinking about us. Right? And typically... When we're guessing, we're not guessing. They're saying, oh, they are an awesome person. Man, they are really getting it today. You know, I'm not guessing up here. Man, they're, they're just like eating up everything I'm saying. You know, if I'm mind reading, more than likely I'm saying, man, everybody's half asleep and they hate me today, right? All of these are characteristics, and there's more of a damaged self-identity. And to be honest, I don't think we even have to get into these symptoms. If this is something you struggle with, you know it. And honestly, what I've experienced in counseling and with dealing with people, when they're dealing with identity issues, most of the time they beat themselves up over their lack of self-esteem and their self-identity issues. I've got good news for you this morning, though. God can restore our identity. Not not a false identity, not a false sense of self. That's what I love about the Word of God. You know, the Word of God, when it tells stories of these great people in the Bible, nothing's hidden. You don't just get Abram's good side. Okay, that's not a good picture of me, God. Let's not show that. It shows Abram from all sides, even when he's in Egypt and saying, my wife is my sister. You know, the, 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 the guy after God's own heart, David, you, you have this great sin in his life. And so God doesn't expect us to have this false image of self. He wants us to have a correct image of self. Not marred. By, by relationships and not marred by failed accomplishments, who we really are, who you were created to be.
See, that's what Jesus came to do. When Jesus came and died on a cross, he came, one of the reasons he came and died was to restore our relationship with God. But also in that restored relationship, there is a restored identity in the people of God, who we are, who we were created to be. Now we're going to begin a, I believe it's a six-week series on baptism today. It's called Becoming Who We Are. And I, you know, if you ask me what that phrase means, I don't know what it means. I just like the phrase. <laughs> Becoming Who We Are. And, and, and this series is called Marked. And, and so we're going to talk about baptism for the next uh, few weeks, next six weeks. Um, sometime pretty soon, I'm going to do a, a series, uh, a secondary series, Becoming Who We Are, on communion called One. And uh, we'll, we'll do that either in the fall or in the summer. But, but we're talking about baptism uh, for the next six weeks. In our church, in our denomination, and in, I believe, all Protestant denominations, there are two things that we call sacraments. Uh, you think of the word sacrament. It's something that we say is holy and sacred and significant. And the two sacraments are and and communion. Those are our two sacraments, and we're not unique among the Protestant churches. This is almost universal among the Protestant churches. Now, when you go to the Catholic church, they have seven sacraments, and we can go into all the reasons why they have seven, and we have two in a private conversation. But we have two things that we declare are sacred, holy, significant events that the people of God do together, baptism and communion. These are things that, from our perspective as Nazarenes, our perspective as Protestants, our perspective in the evangelical church, these are the things that Jesus instituted in his word, that Jesus participated in, and encouraged and instructed his church to continue. And so throughout history, from the beginning, there has been baptism and communion in the church, there are stories of baptisms before there is the New Testament. The New Testament talks about baptisms from the day of Pentecost, and even considering John's baptism from before John's baptism. So, before the church had the Word of God, before we had the New Testament, the church was performing baptisms. Now, in Paul's letter to Corinthians, which predates all of the New Testament. It's, it's one of the earliest letters written. So before any of the gospel accounts, Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And in this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul includes this description of communion. In other words, be, before there was a New Testament, the church was practicing communion. Both of these sacraments predate the New Testament. And so throughout history, across the world, they are experiencing baptism and communion as holy sacraments. Now, in the, in the Nazarene church, in the, in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe that in baptism and in, and in communion, we come into contact to the holy presence of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and there is transformation that occurs in the midst of the receiving of a sacrament. And so later in the service, when, when you walk down here and you dip the bread in the juice, we believe that you are coming face to face 
with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in, we, we believe that it's in his presence, you know, throughout all these things we do, the singing, uh, the preaching, unless we find ourselves in the presence of God, there's not a lot of transformation that occurs. But, but it's in the midst of these kind of things that praying at the altar, you encounter, you know, you encounter God in all different ways. But we believe this is a special ordained thing that, that Jesus Christ ordained for the church to do so that we can come into contact with him and be changed. A sacrament. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about baptism and what it means. Nancy Thompson made us this cool fountain that... Um, Hopefully, it's not making people think they need to head to the restrooms because of the water running. Um, but um, if it is, let me know. We'll turn it off. Um, but it's cool. It looks cool. You can see it come up closer and look at it. And, and, and then in the back of the sanctuary, since we're talking about being marked, there is a place where you can put your, your finger in, in some white paint and put it on a cross. Uh, your fingerprint is unique to you. If you commit a crime... CSI will figure out you did it by your fingerprint, right? This is a unique attribute of you. No one has a fingerprint just like you. And yet we find our true identity not in this world but in Jesus Christ. And so symbolically, I want you to to put your finger in the paint and put it on the cross and we'll hang that up just as a reminder that our identity is found in Jesus Christ. We are marked as being the people of Christ and we'll hang that on the wall throughout this series. And as you leave every every Sunday morning, we'll, we'll be reminded that we have been marked and our identity is found in Jesus Christ. And then not only that, we're going to do baptisms. At the end of this series, and this series will end on Easter Sunday, uh, we're going to allow, if you've never been baptized, and, and we can do it a number of ways, we can, we can fully immerse you, and we can also sprinkle if you if you're, don't want to get your hair wet or whatever. Uh, we, we can sprinkle you or further, f- fully dip you in the bapt- baptistry in the back. Uh, and, and also, I want to give you an opportunity for reaffirmation or confirmation of baptism. Well, what I have found as a pastor is there are many people that have been baptized when they were infants or when they were younger, and, and they need that outlet where they can meaningfully confirm or affirm a baptism that occurred earlier in life. And so on Easter, I'm hoping that we baptize a whole lot of people and also have a lot of confirmations and affirmations of people stepping forward and saying, I affirm that I, my identity is found in Jesus Christ and that baptism that, that I had when I was 16, 15, 14, 20, 28, that still stands and that's who I am. So what is a sacrament? Rob Staples in his book, Outward Signing, Inward Grace, writes, what is a sacrament? A visible word, said Augustine in a succinct metaphor, an outward sign and an inward grace and a means by whereby we receive the same, said John Wesley. It's a significant means of grace, this way to receive the grace of God. If you need more grace of God this morning, raise your hand. I need more grace. And so a sacrament is this significant sign whereby we receive. that we, It is a, a means of receiving the grace of God. It's a sign that God is doing something significant inside the life of a believer. 
It's visible. It's for, for the whole world to see. That's, that's why typically when we receive communion, that we receive it as a church family here together. Because together we are signifying what God is doing in this community of faith. Baptisms aren't something you, you do in private, but, but you do it before family. You do it before your church. And you celebrate together that there is this inward work. And baptism is a sign of this inner work. So what is the significance of baptism? I'm going to read, you from, read to you from Matthew 3. This is uh, today we're going to talk about John's baptism. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's robes, clothes, clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locust and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Who, who was John's most famous person that he baptized? Jesus. Jesus. If you've not been baptized and you're following Jesus, you've not followed him into the water because Jesus was baptized. But, but John baptizes, and he's got this, this you know, the, the, all the people are coming to John's baptism, and, and it's a significant event in the life of Jesus that Jesus comes and he submits himself to baptism. And there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate. What was John's baptism? What was John trying to accomplish? Now, now some suggest... That, that John's baptism was a cleansing. And, and there's some that will go so far to, to, to classify John as one of the Essenes. This was a, a political party, a, a religious group in the time of Jesus. And Essenes were, were those who were, they, they were setting themselves apart. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls come from the Essenes. And, 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 and so they're setting themselves apart. They would go to the wilderness. They would live apart from everybody else. And, and they were separating themselves from what they considered a, an unholy culture, an evil culture. And so they separated themselves. And they practiced many of these kinds of cleansings. And so some suggest that John may have been part of that party, part of that, that group. So some suggest that, that John is doing a proselyte baptism. In other words, if, if somebody was a Gentile and they wanted to become a, a Jew, if they wanted to convert to Judaism, they would go through this whole process. And one of the things they would do was a baptism or a full immersion. And I think when you, when you talk about this and you talk about baptism, there, there is a part of baptism that relates to being clean. There is a part of baptism that, that is talking about reclaiming heritage, who we are. Certainly that's there. But I don't believe this tells us the entire story with regard to John's baptism. See, see those that John was baptizing were already Jews. And so it's possible that John was saying, well, you're not really Jewish, and we're going to do a proselyte baptism and bring you back into Jewish faith. But, but they were Jews. They weren't Gentiles that were being baptized. And so really, a, a proselyte baptism doesn't make a lot of sense. 
and the Jordan River is dirty. It's a dirty river. And so to, to, to say that John is doing a cleansing ritual in the Jordan River really makes very little sense because the Jordan was a dirty, dirty river. I believe when you look at John's baptism, what you're seeing is a reminder of an earlier crossing. See, we we all know the story. The, The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And through plague and through signs, God led them out of slavery in Egypt until they were at the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's mind was changed and he began to pursue God's people to the Red Sea, the Israelites, and God what? Parted. You guys have seen Charlton Heston do this, right? Part of the Red Sea, and the people walked through as if on dry ground. And then after they got through, he closed the Red Sea over the Egyptians who were pursuing. So, so there's one crossing from slavery to freedom. And, and then there's a 40-year experience where they're, they're wandering in the wilderness because they won't take direction from God. And so they wander for 40 years, and then once again, they come to what river? The Jordan. And there is this crossing into the promised land across the Jordan River. So so I believe what John's doing is John is taking them back to two crossings, the Red Sea and the Jordan. And yet, even though they were living in the promised land, they weren't living as the promised land people. That they weren't living according to the standards. They weren't living as the people of God. That they they were simply Roman subjects. And so John's bringing people to the Jordan and they're recrossing and they're reclaiming their status as a people of God subject to the promises of God, to, to what God had promised from the very beginning. They were saying, we are fully yours, God. We are the people of God. We're not slaves. We're not simply Roman subjects. We're we're, we're not wanderers. We're we're not subject just to our culture. But we are the people of God. Can you say that with me? We are the people of God. There's something significant in that. This isn't like just saying, okay, I'm a monarch. All right? You know, I'm a Marysville fan, or, or you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an Ohioan. <laughs> you know, if you're an Ohioan, uh, guess what? You've got to pay Ohio State taxes to be the people of God. It means that we are heirs, joint heirs. We, we have access, we have the right to receive the blessings and the promises of God because we are God's people. You are the children of God. Baptism marks us as God's people. When you go into the water, you are saying, I belong to God. It is a visible sign of an 
inner work that has happened in your life. You're you're no longer a slave to your culture. You're, You're not just simply an American. You're not just simply a Buckeye, but you belong to the one true Father, the creator of everything. You belong to God. That's what baptism says. And so when you went into the water, it it, it marked you as belonging to God. But it doesn't end there. See, see, I believe Abraham, God said, I am going to bless you to what? To make you a blessing. See, See, God never just gives blessing with the ideal that you just receive blessing and, oh, just pour it on me, God. But God expects his people to be conduits of his blessing. Expects you to be holy vessels. And when I say holy, I mean you need to have holes in you so when the blessings are coming through, they're just flowing right through you, right? God expects you to be a blessing because he has blessed you. We are marked to leave a mark. Can you say that with me? We are marked to leave a mark. You have been marked with the Spirit of God. You have been marked as the people of God, not just for your own benefit, but you have been marked as the people of God to benefit and love and and shower grace on people who are far from God, that have no clue about the goodness of our God, that may even reject the goodness of our God. God is expecting us as his people to be a blessing to a world that is devoid of light and hope and life. So over the next few weeks, we're, um, we're going to do several things, and we've not sorted them all out, but, but, but we're looking for ways to, to make a mark in Marysville. <laughs> and so we're looking for several missional projects, and, and maybe you've already got something you're doing. Maybe you're doing something with your neighbor. And share it with Christy, share it with me, share it with Pastor Josh, Pastor Joe, or uh, Pastor Bob, and let us know what's going on. Maybe you've already got something in mind that you're doing, some way that you're going to make a mark in, in the next several weeks that you're going to be a blessing. Now, anytime we talk about sacraments, the other thing we need to think about is, is the ideal of sacraments are us. It's not just me, but it's, it's us doing these things together. You know, we, we celebrate baptism together, and, and the church... You know, we're, we're recognizing in baptism that we are the people of God. And, and, and we used to sing a song in the church, Family of God. Remember singing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, join heirs with Jesus and all that stuff. Um, you know, we, we are a family. We, we are one. We are, as Paul says, the body of Christ. And, and so the sacraments, communion particularly, but baptism also inaugurates us into that family of God. And, you know, it, it's as if you're being born again into a new family. There's this awesome story in the Bible, and Jesus is teaching, and the implication is that his brothers thinks that he's lost his mind. And so Jesus is sitting and teaching, and, and one of the disciples, you know, Jesus' brothers and their, his mother shows up outside where he's teaching, and the implication from the scripture is they're afraid that Jesus is going to get hurt or he's not thinking clearly, and so they need to bring him out of this situation to protect him. And And... They say, hey, Jesus, your brothers and your mother's outside. And Jesus looks at those sitting around him and goes, you know, look, you guys are my mother and my brothers. (laughs) Look around you. These are your brothers and sisters, your mothers and your fathers. This is your true eternal family. 
Now, now for those of us, if you're blessed to have family members who are part of the kingdom, we rejoice and and we we strive to bring all of our family members into the kingdom because we love them, right? But but I want you to know that you belong to an eternal family called the Church of God. (laughs) And so another missional aspect of this of this, this series is this. We're encouraging you over the next six to seven weeks to invite someone that you don't know very well. Maybe it's somebody that's just begun coming to our church. Maybe it's somebody that's been here a long time, but you've just really not gotten to know them like you would like. We're encouraging you to find one family, one, one couple, one person, and invite them over to your house. You, you don't have to cook a full meal. Um, Except Josh wants full meals. If you're inviting him, you know, he'll, he'll give you the menu. Um, no, it doesn't have to be anything like that. You can just invite him over for games and coffee. Uh, you know, maybe Ohio's, may, the NCAA tournament's coming up, so you could have a first weekend party and invite a few people to your home. So we're encouraging you to invite someone into your home that maybe typically you wouldn't. See, see the, I, I have this firm belief that if we want to be the church that God wants us to be, We've got to break out of our comfort zones and begin to include other people into our circles of trust, our circles of, of, of privacy and influence. And so I, I know, who would raise your hand and say, Pastor, that is the most awkward thing anyone's ever asked me to do. Raise your hand, right? I know. What's the Bible say? What, you know, when you think that something's awkward and difficult... I think typically the Bible says things like, oh yeah, but think about Jesus. Oh, that's right. He left heaven and died for you, okay? If Jesus can leave heaven and die for you, don't you think maybe you could invite somebody into your home that you don't know so well? Uh, that, man, that was a lot of guilt right there, wasn't it? That was like hitting you with a hammer. Now I want to give you three just very practical suggestions. We're going to close in communion. But three very practical suggestions if you're struggling with self-identity issues. Number one, allow the Bible to set your identity. Do not allow the culture. Do not allow other family members. Do not allow friends. Do not allow your workplace. Allow the word of God to set your identity. That that means we have to be in the word, right? You know, sitting there, like that, with me sitting here, like this, does nothing. <laughs> um, I've got, and I'm not bragging, but I'm bragging a little bit, I've got a lot of Bibles, right? Who's got a lot of Bibles? Raise your hand. If you don't open them, it doesn't matter how many Bibles you have. And the Bible can never set our identity unless we spend time in God's Word. Surround yourself with godly supportive people. In counseling circumstances that, that I have with people that struggle with identity issues and, 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 and struggle with negativity and, and bitterness and anger, many times the most important thing they need to do is separate themselves from some of the people that are causing wrong ideals of self and wrong ideals of life. If a friend... Is not and see we have to you know we've got to be salt and light and we, and we need to be friends with people that maybe aren't believers. That has to happen, but it's possible to have a friend that's a believer that takes you down the wrong path in the way you perceive yourself and the way you perceive others. 
And I guess the counsel is here, be aware of who is influencing your thinking of others and your thinking of self. And then finally, pay, play close attention to God's move in your life. Say, so why, why, why does that matter, Pastor? This week, God will be at work in your life. And, and it will allow you to, to catch a glimpse of how much God values you and cares for you. Uh, he'll be present. As Leonard Sweet's book, Nudge, talks about, God is present all around us. That, that's the, the, the theology of prevenient grace, is he is the God who is one step ahead. He is the God who precedes us. He is the God who is there before we're there, at work, loving, reaching, uh, showering grace upon us. And so I'd encourage you this week to, to pay attention to God's work in your life. Now we're going to receive communion. and I'm going to ask Chris and Amy, Chris, to come and play. And, uh, and uh, don't you appreciate Chris and Amy? I do, I tell you. <laughs> Stand with me, if you will. And the, the kids are going to be dismissing you from the back. And... Uh, what we do when we receive communion by his intention, and we're an open communion church. We're, we, we believe you don't have to be a member here. You don't have to, uh, you know, you don't have to do anything particular. You don't have to go through a class. This is a means of grace. And if, if you are honestly seeking, pursuing God, and, and, and there's, there, there's, you're not doing it out of any farcical reason, but, but you truly want to experience him this morning, this is a time for you. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to say a short prayer and we're going to ask God to examine our motives, why we're doing this. And then we're going to come forward and you'll dip it and you'll eat it just as you come by the table. Um, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, right now as we receive these elements, I pray that you'll give us hearts that are tender to you. You are present in this place. You love us, you see us, you care for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have relationship with our Heavenly Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. I pray now, Lord, as we receive these elements, that we will um, receive it with sincerity, with humble hearts. Lord, that we will uh, uh, be aware of anything that we need to confess. And Lord, we'll be aware of any relationship that, that we need to restore as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.